are listening to Primal Radio, the podcast dedicated to combat sports, martial arts, self-defense, and the warrior mindset. And here are your hosts from Hamilton, New Jersey, Jim McCann, and London, England, Tom McGrath. All right, Primal Radio, we're back. This is Tom McGrath coming at you. And today I've got Jeremy Lynch from California. Introduce yourself, Jeremy. What's up, dudes? I'm Jeremy Lynch from California. (laughs) (laughs) That was perfect. It's the worst (laughs) intro ever. The worst and I think it was the worst British accent I've ever done, too. So yeah. It was even worse than before. <laughs> I can't do you at all. You can at least do Austin Powers. Yeah, exactly. And he's got the perfect British accent. Yeah. So as you might have guessed, we've got Jeremy Lynch back this week. <laughs> so no no well, Jim McCann. <laughs> Jim McCann's not around. Same, same story as always. Jeremy's joining me to add that bit of uh, charisma that we so vitally need on this little podcast. <laughs> How's it going, mate? Just out here enjoying the sun, and uh, I've been counting the minutes until we did this podcast. This has been the the focus of my weekend. Highlight of your week. Good, good. So this week we've got a guest who is another instructor from the Wednesday night group. I guess, you know, through the COVID lockdown, we haven't done many shows. So I kind of wanted to ease in with a few friendly faces while I'm finding my feet. And uh, this is a friendly face, although I haven't actually seen him since... 2014 at my last recollection or it might be slightly after that he's a police officer in california a black belt in bjj and a full instructor in the wednesday night group he's gonna have no holds barred he's assured me some cursing and stuff like that so welcome to the show sean king hello so should i just start cursing immediately with that intro please do (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> get them all out of the way you've listened to a few of our shows right yes yes <laughs> oh do you want me to tell you if it's any good or not yeah oh. <laughs> <laughs> i thought we were getting a dennis blue one word hope, answer i'm just there. hoping we increase the downloads by one for my guest appearance my mom will help with downloads that's one extra download <laughs> excellent that's just what we need Maybe I can get some fake friends on Instagram to, to listen to me, too. <laughs> I mean, where have you been? <laughs> well, mainly my life consists of going to work a lot. That's it. I've been t- I'm still training and stuff, just not JKD hasn't been the focus. It's been mainly grappling over the last five plus years because of the relevance more towards my job. They mm-hmm. sort of frown upon you just blasting someone in the face if they don't listen to you. So, and you've done martial arts for years. Like, how did you get into it, and when did that happen? Seriously, started in probably the late '90s. In college, the UFC started, and I watched all the UFCs, and I was like, "Oh, I need to do that." And uh, so, when I graduated, I had nothing to do besides work and come home and sit on my butt and watch TV. And uh, decided, well, instead of just sitting on my butt when I get off work, let's go join a a gym. And what was that? What was that initial? interaction i went and joined a gym that had a, a ufc competitor i don't know if anybody ever remembers him fabiana Iha. he was a brazilian jiu-jitsu guy him and uh, so i went there to join that so i was like i gotta learn this jiu-jitsu this hoist gracie guy's beating everybody so i want to oh, beat up yeah. everybody <laughs> and uh i went there and there was a jkd guy there too i was taking both classes and then the two of them 
had a financial dispute, I'm assuming, and the gym separated. And uh, I really like this uh, Jeet Kune Do stuff, so I followed him. William Holland, pretty good instructor, a little power lifter like guy too. He's like five six and pretty strong. So just going back then, so this was like those uh, those early days of the of um, the UFC where it was kind of still like different styles almost fighting each other and then and the BJJ had really started to take off but you found the JKD still through that gym because JKD is still like sort of like a minority martial art and I guess BJJ wasn't as big as it's become yeah I mean I got lucky I grew up watching I don't know if people know in LA they had KTLA had Kung Fu Theater I used to watch all the Bruce Lee movies oh yeah as a little kid and I was like oh I'm gonna get a I'm gonna learn that and I'll be a black belt someday and all that so it was on the back burner, and then the UFC happened, and I saw, you know, Hoist beating everybody. I said, well, obviously I need to learn this. And so I found the nearest Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy and went there, and then by pure luck, William Holland was teaching there, teaching uh, JKD. So I got the best of both worlds. And t- tell me about William Holland, because I don't know anything about him. I probably should. <laughs> uh, William Holland? He's, he's, <laughs> no, he was... Uh, Honestly, I didn't even know what his lineage was back then. It didn't really concern me. I didn't know anything at the time. I was like, okay, well, he looks like he's doing JKDs. He's explaining it like he knows it, so he must know it. I think he was with Abel something. I can't remember the guy's last name. Is who he always credited with. You know, he did the whole, you know, right lead, power side, forward, the trapping and all that. So, you know, when you're reading the, the Dow, you go, okay, it sounds like JKD, and he's that's what he's showing. So I went with him. And was it like the Bruce lineage or, or like Bruce Lee that sort of drew you to, to JKD for me it wasn't it was like I just started this random martial arts class I did see it mentioned Bruce Lee in the advert that didn't really mean that much to me and it was only through training that I came to appreciate Bruce Lee it was a scientific nature of let's test it let's not be classical that really made me fall in love with the art if you will yeah, I didn't stay because it was like, wow, this is Bruce Lee's art. And I grew up, you know, watching him on TV. I really liked what he did, obviously, because when they separated, I had to choose one gym or the other. And uh, I was like, well, this stuff is really efficient. I really like this. And uh, then I just started doing more research from there as I trained with him. Yeah. And, and how closely did that tie back to like what you thought jkd might be you know having said that you'd read the dow and stuff like that yeah i started doing more reading i mean before i started taking it i you know saw what was in movies and and stuff like that but i really didn't know exactly what jkd is back then just okay it's bruce's art and he told me that's what he was teaching so it was okay and then just started reading the books but i just liked what he was teaching seemed realistic good boxing mechanics and uh, kicking mechanics. And you said something that was kind of pricked my ears right away is that you said strong side forward. And nowadays, a lot of times you can find a bunch of people teaching Jeet Kune Do that are mostly left side forward or, or weak side forward. That was a good start right there because the the whole fencing aspect and, and uh, the focus on intercepting. So that was the, you got the, the goods right off the bat. Yeah, and the good news is then uh, he actually, within a year that I was there, he ended up hosting the Wednesday night group for a seminar. And that's how I uh, ended up meeting them for the very first time. Right. That, that, that was going to be my next question. I mean, was there sort of like a transition of like, right, I need to go and train with those guys or, you know, 
did you stay with your original coach and like work both camps? Well, I was in Huntington Beach at the time. That's where William Hall was. He hosted them for a seminar. I remember Tackett was probably, looking back, it was probably the hammer hammer drill there. It was smacking me in the head. And I was in my 20s. And, you know, you look at Tackett, he doesn't look like an athlete. Sorry, Tackett. But he's you know, <laughs> more than probably double my age at that point, smacking me in the head. And I couldn't stop it. So I was going, oh, I need to, you know figure out why this guy can smack me in the head and I can't stop him from doing it. But I stayed with William Holland and then uh, I moved to San Diego to go to law school. And I came down here and started training at a concepts school, as they say. And it went back to weak side forward, very a lot of Thai boxing and a lot of college, which, you know, nothing wrong with those arts. I mean, I've gotten my butt kicked by many Thai boxers, you know, in sparring. But I remember going up to him going, this isn't what I read in Bruce's notes and this isn't what I've experienced so far with, you know, William Holland and the one seminar I had with the Wednesday night group. There's no, uh, strong side forward, very limited intercepting. It was mostly blocking and then returning like a tie kick or a punch and stuff like that. Then I sent Tackett an email saying, Hey, do you remember the tall goofy redhead that was at your seminar in the last year? Can I come down there and train at your garage? And, uh, he emailed me and said, you realize it's about a 110-mile drive? And I said, yep, yeah, I'm, I'm aware of that. And he said, that's when I started making the drive. On the, on the law element, so you're a police officer now. Is that a common route in the U.S. to study law and then go to a police officer? It wouldn't be in the U.K. That'd be, like, very rare. It's like almost like you're, you're studying for, like, a job that pays $200,000 and then going to one that doesn't. <laughs> It's a total moron move. No one else would do that. No, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. <laughs> and why was that? Did you like not do well, or is this like I just I you knew in your heart you wanted to see the action? So this just proves you don't have to be bright to go to law school because I'm I'm living proof of this. Um, you know, I went to law school while I was in law school. I wasn't allowed to work the first year, and but then I the second year in law school I, I got a job as a bouncer. You know, I was in law school balancing, you know, on the weekends and, and some nights, getting uh, some physical confrontations and stuff would happen at the bars or in the parking lot near my bar and the police would show up. So I'd start talking to the police a lot. Quite honestly, you know, you're reading your law books and it sounded like more fun to, to go catch the criminal than be in court and, uh, you know, take one side or the other on why he should go to jail or not go to jail. So. <laughs> I want to spend the second half of this interview focusing a lot on, on the police work and I, I guess how relevant the martial arts is. But like, did that change your tr- training, your perspective? Like when, when you made that decision, so you're, you're now working the doors and then you've made this decision, like I, I'm, I think I'm going to end up being a cop. Did you like suddenly start adapting your training or, you know, because you can't just go and punch someone, you know, you're known as a power puncher. You're, what are you, six foot seven? <laughs> no, I'm only <laughs> six four. Come on, I'm sure you're six foot seven. But in England, you're six foot seven. That's uh, the, the measurements well, are different over there. Me in heels for in England, so yes, I usually have six foot seven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, you're not six foot seven. I, I'm sure you're taller than six four. Uh, wow, okay. I'm six. I'm two. six two. Yeah, he's like a couple inches taller than us. Maybe three. Maybe six five. He might be six five with the shoes on. Yeah, yeah, he's downplaying it. Okay, but did, did and his socks and his socks. Did that change like the way you trained? Uh, when I started working the door, I was at that point. I was going out down to Redlands and training down there, so it didn't change it too much. It 
you know, the awareness training, maybe. Luckily, all the stuff I was learning down there, I was using, you know, how, how I would stand in a certain position, you know, the one hand across the chest, but the other one under my chin, ready for a straight lead, which other door guys started picking up on when some guy was at the front door losing his mind on me. As soon as I got in that position, they, most of them would get excited because they thought then I was, the guy did anything, I was going to get to blast him in the face, and that's what they wanted to see. So, <laughs> were you involved in like the sort of the smoker fight era that you know with Jeremy and a, f- a few of the other guys fighting under kind of Dennis's directorship? Were you, were you part of that gang? No, they were. They did that, I think, before I came down there. I don't know what their timeline was. I showed up in the late '90s, 2000. So they had already done most of that, which is probably a good thing because I'm sure I heard stories of Dennis killing people in training. So. I don't know if my frail body would have held up very well. <laughs> Last week we had uh, Christian Kluger on and I was telling the story of how Dennis had done this drill where everyone stands back to back sort of thing then we rotate, rotated round but the guy would shove you and then you were straight into a brawl and so many people got injured and then Dennis got told off and wasn't allowed to teach it anymore because he was like fucking up too many of the students but... It was like a broken arm or something. <laughs> that camp in AC, you just came down to go to the bar, right? In where? In Atlantic City in 2014. You you were just at, at the bar with like Patrick Cunningham and a few of us till like the early hours, but I don't think you were training, right? No, yeah, I don't think we did any training. I think at that point I was banned from teaching because they thought we'd show up, me and Pat, intoxicated or whatever. <laughs> I had one bad night at Las Vegas at one of our camps and then Tackett doesn't trust us to show up sober. I don't know what the problem is, but... <laughs> My first camp was like 2009. Yeah, 2009. I think 2007, there was some incident where you'd been out until all hours with a few of the guys. <laughs> he directed everybody towards me when we were in Vegas. Say, hey, if you'd like to see the town, you know, Sean will be happy to show you around. Well, I can't disappoint. You want people to come back to the camp, don't you? So <laughs> Those are the best ones for me. I've always had that ability to sort of, you know, get quite drunk the night before and still get up and train. Well, I like to think I have at any rate. I, think I might be going now as I get older. Has like the, the sort of like the global appeal of the JKD it surprised you? Like you taught a seminar along with Jeremy and some of the other guys in Catania in Italy. 120 people had showed up. You know, it, it's it's kind of like it's bigger numbers than we were getting in the US. Is is, is that kind of surprised you? A little bit. I mean, it's it's. I'm surprised that we can't get more people here, but then I sort of realize I've gone to other seminars for other martial arts out here, even like a huge name for BJJ. I've gotten a seminar and they still don't get 150, you know, people that have competed and medaled at ADCC, the biggest grappling tournament, and they won't even get 150. And I mean, the seminar is say 50 bucks. So it's cheap and they still can't attract a lot of people. So yeah, I was surprised they're so gung-ho. It's great. I love it. But uh, yeah, a little disappointed in Americans, I guess. Jim McCann and Hock Hockheim were both saying the same thing in terms of like they, there was like a golden era back in the day where you could really charge quite a lot of money and get very good numbers. Do you think it's just competition or you know, do you think it's like a cultural thing where you know people want the result they want a quick fix they they can't afford to spend two days training they'll just watch the youtube video instead i think it's partially that i also think it's ego honestly i went to a 
camp uh, seminar thing for a weekend last January, and you had to do some some grappling, and you're going against, you know, sometimes the instructors would jump in and just absolutely destroy some of these people, you know, hey, keep fighting, keep fighting when you're on the ground, and the people would just give up, and some people just didn't come back the next day. And it wasn't mean, it was just like they were trying to teach them, hey, you know, just because you're on the ground, here, just push away, keep pushing, get up, get up, and nope, next day people didn't come back. So I think it's also an ego thing. They don't want to look bad. I mean, we've been to the JKD seminars. I'll use like Seattle, one of the Bruce Lee Foundation back in the day seminars, went up to Seattle and the walls were lined with sifus that didn't move. They didn't want to go out there and do anything. Yeah. We talked about that last week where we're referencing the sifus that show up and pay their admittance for, for the seminar. And then they stand around with their arms crossed to sort of show everybody they're a Sifu and they don't need to learn anything. And that's, it's the exact opposite mindset of what JKD is supposed to be. And it's like the instructor certificate is now supposedly the measurement of how good of a fighter you are and, and not anything to do with teaching. You know, like, oh, I got my certificate. I can go over there in the corner and look tough. Jim always tells the story of like him and Vince fucking around at that Seattle seminar and... Vince's like you know finger had caught Jim in his eye or something like that, so it was like blood around his eye, you know, pouring down, and everyone was like, <gasps> like these guys are really going, you know, as if it was like really serious. But to illustrate, you know, other people just weren't training. When I last chatted to you, you were early in your BJJ career. I think you just got your blue belt. Fast forward to 2020, and you're now a black belt. Like you, I picked up another system and I, my, I went down the FMA route. So I, I focused on weapons, you focused on grappling. Um, I have to say grappling is the, the big gap in my game at the moment. But you had a strong desire to go and get a belt and do a system with a belt. And I kind of felt the same where the standards were clear. Talk me through that thought process for you. I always said I wanted to get a black belt and... I looked around at martial arts and there was pretty much none other than JKD that I really, you know, that I really cared about passionately like I do. But unfortunately, JKD doesn't have belts. So the next art that I thought that I enjoyed the most and would get the most out of was BJJ. So I was like, oh, well, we'll just pursue this uh, for the belt. And also it was a weakness in in uh, generally my game. I wasn't thinking so far ahead that it'll help me out at work. It was more of I had joined other gyms like back in the day dan henderson's gym i'd drive up there and i'd spar against his fighters and dan henderson attracts a ton of wrestlers and i was pretty good with footwork and keeping away with the jab but eventually those wrestlers are going to corner you or slow you down and get a hold of you and then i end up on my butt then it was a bad day the rest of the day for me so i was like yeah i gotta get some ground game going here because this is not fun I believe like everything, you know, your weaknesses are also strengths and your strengths are weaknesses, if that makes sense. And I feel for like the Wednesday night group, the informality, it comes out of a garage, you know, at some stage they'll say you're ready. That It's kind of like a real strength, but it's also a weakness. And I think it can leave some people frustrated and feeling like, well, where do I stand in this group? And what do I do to get ahead? Did that play into your mind at all? For BJJ? No, for the Wednesday night group. You know, when I joined the Wednesday night room, I actually did not care about any certificates. I just wanted to learn how to punch really hard and kick and do all that good stuff. In fact, I'll say getting a certificate was actually stressful because as soon as they handed me a certificate, I was like, 
well, I don't want to be the crappiest member of this group, you know, even though it's like, <laughs> here's your apprentice, here's your apprentice certificate. And it's like, oh crap. Now they expect something out of me before it's like, you're the, you're just the idiot, you know, over there when Bob's making fun of you and you're like, okay, well, whatever. He's just making fun of me. But once you get that, you're like, oh, now they might introduce me as like an apprentice instructor. Yeah. <laughs> you were the most powerful level one in our group for a long time. <laughs> Tell me about how JKD has influenced your BJJ and how BJJ has influenced your JKD. I'd say more that JKD has influenced some of my BJJ game. BJJ, you can show technique after technique after technique. I mean, there's just so many. It's endless. And you can get caught up in it. I'll be the first to be like, okay, I got a 30 new moves are pretty awesome. But then when you actually start grappling, it goes back to, I'd say, the fundamentals. You know, if you don't have, you know, certain structure, you know, certain balance, you know, then your BJJ is going to be not as good. Just like in JKD, it all starts with the foundation and the fundamentals. The spinning, whatever, looks cool. You know, the spinning back kick that Bruce does or whatever looks cool. But you're not going to get to that point unless you have the fundamentals down of, you know, being an athletic balanced stance so say jkd has definitely more influenced the bjj than the bjj influencing the jkd some systems in bjj they award you a certificate based on your ready my friend jason cruz who you guys know he, he does that he's a good others guy. do it through competition was yours one of the ones where it's competition so all the blue belts fight the blue belts if you win you can get promoted and then you etc etc how did yours work? Mine is just when the instructor felt you're ready. You know, I had other people I trained with going, when are you going to get, like, the purple belt? When are you going to get the brown belt? And I said, I don't know, whenever he thinks I'm ready. They're like, well, aren't you worried you won't get the brown belt? I go, well, I, I bet you if I start tapping him out, he'll give me a brown belt, you know, just because that's how BJJ works. <laughs> so I'm like, obviously, I'm not catching him, and that's fine. You know, I need to get better. So it's more merit-based to a certain point. Uh, he explained, you know, to me, obviously, there's difference in black belts. Uh, I don't know if you know jujitsu, but like, say, Gordon Ryan, you know, the best no-gi guy right now. His black belt, he would destroy me. I'm a black belt, but you got to take into account I'm not a 24, whatever he is, competition, full-time training black belt. It's just when you've reached a certain skill level and they feel you're ready. That's what I was getting at, that I guess BJJ is somewhat of a, a meritocracy. You tend to get elevated through the ranks based on competition. And also the quality of teaching, because of the numbers of people that do it, the standard seems to always be very high. If you like fight a sort of a brown belt in BJJ, they're always pretty excellent in, in my experience. I'm not a ground fighter, but... Yeah, that's what you'd hope. That BJJ really wants to try to keep it that way, I think, when you talk to people. They like the merit base because then there's not the fake instructors, the fake sifus, because it's pretty much, okay, then let's get on the mat and let's see how good you are. When you get a black belt, doesn't mean you're never going to get tapped out again. That's hard in JKD because, you know, in my class, I have my own system of, of certifying. It's not necessarily the Wednesday night groups, even though I'm the one that teaches that class for the last, whatever, 10 years. But I have guys that have been with me forever. They know the material. And then we are so focused on street fighting and the ability to actually fight. Obviously, you know, you're not going to say, well, you can't get your next level if you can't beat up everybody in class. But at the same time, you want to see them spar, at least at the level that they're doing. You know, let me see what you can do. Let me see how you hit. 
And it, it's hard. Sometimes you feel like, boy, this guy's been here for two years and I've not given him any levels. And is that fair? You know, and I think that's a problem we have in JKD, especially with our group, <laughs> is that people have been around for a while and some of them seem to get elevated very quickly because they might ask for it. And others, they don't ask and they don't, we don't even really think about it. I started making sure I did certification in my class just to make sure I knew what I was teaching people because they have all these different schedules and we don't have very many classes. It's very difficult to find that that perfect sort of measure at to say a person's level, especially for the higher levels, like level four. When you went into that Wednesday night group garage, as a young man, you're surrounded by these people like, you know, a few of them are ex-military and bikers and blah 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 what was your impression of that group what lasting influence it had on you well i uh, i pretty much have a terrible memory but i do remember my first class there because i got paired up with jeremy would have to help me out because they always called him hollywood he was the one holding the pads for me I, yeah that's this day, I still, okay yeah <laughs> so rick was the partner holding the focus mitts for me and you know I don't know who was showing the drill we're going to go over. You okay, you know, hold the pads like this and hold it like that. And he was changing the drill mid-drill, mid-punch. If it was jab-cross, he would move it from jab to all of a sudden he was holding it at his knee. And I'm going, you know, well, everybody else is doing this. What, what's going on? And then, then I got a little freaked out because then he'd, like, hold the pad. And all of a sudden he whipped out a knife, a real knife, not like a training knife. He had a <laughs> knife in his pocket. And he dropped the pad and pulled out a knife with his hand. And I'd stop punching because I was like, what, you know, is this guy going to stab me or whatever? But they talked to him <laughs> like he was their good buddy. So I thought he was like a senior, knowledgeable student. No one warned me, you know, that quite honestly, he didn't know as much as he thought he did. And he was a little, you know, crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had known Tackett for years, but we only saw him like once a year kind of thing, you know. And uh, he was, a, we call him Hollywood because he's a makeup artist in, in uh, Hollywood. I think he still works doing that. But yeah, yeah, that that was kind of one of his things is that he'd be like, oh, you know what else you could do? Or, you know, and you could get like various different drills spearing off from that one drill. <laughs> We're still friends on Facebook, I think. And, you know, he tells you, he's like, I've been coming here for years and years, and I know Tackett, so I'm figuring, oh, this guy's been doing JKD for 10 years. I didn't know it was one day every year for 10 years, you know, and I'm the new guy, so I'm just trying to not get thrown out and behave and all that stuff. So <laughs> just sort of bit my tongue, and then later on down the road, I found out the guy, you know, oh, okay, now I know. When we interviewed Dennis, he was adamant that, the things that he'd learned in the garage, you know, that they'd saved his life working as a police officer or in the military. Do you feel like those techniques have had that level of impact on you? I would definitely say what I learned, I don't know if saved my life, but probably saved me some, from some serious injuries because I started taking it and then I did the bouncing. And I had, I remember one story is someone got kicked out, came around to the front door, tried to get back in. I was the front door guy. I'm like, you're not coming back in. And he took a swing at me and I slipped it and hit him at the same time. And he went down and I was about to, fortunately for me, kick him, which probably would have been in the head and then I'd be in jail. But I stopped from kicking him. He got up and uh, ended up walking away. And the police came later. But at that point, I was like, wow, that was actually, I think, maybe two, three years into my JKD journey. And I was like, I actually did sort of the four corners right there. I slipped and hit him at the same time. You maintained the presence of mind not to kick him in the head. 
<laughs> right, which is, is something as well. A lot of people would have done. If... Yeah, I was pretty pissed off that someone was trying to knock my head off when I hadn't really done anything. But the good news is, yeah, I hit him with a straight lead, and then I think two straight leads, one to the face, one to the body or whatever. Then he hit the ground, and I was like, raised my leg up, and then I went, and I stopped. And then, you know, getting up off the ground, and there was a line at the door, and the good news is everybody in line goes, oh, that guy deserved that, because they saw what had happened. (laughs) Police work, I would tend to think of as being mostly about, from a sort of physical martial arts standpoint, submission control does the sort of like boxing kickboxing stuff have a place or not oh yeah i've uh kicked a few people not just the kicking and punching i think the big thing is the distance and angling is always what i'm thinking about when i'm contacting someone you know i don't know what the percentage is but over 80 percent are right-handed so i always angle off so that it's going to be really hard for them to hit me with their right hand And secondly, you know, so then also when I go in, I usually try to grab the right arm immediately because, number one, they're either going to punch me with that one really good or most people, since they're right-handed, are going to grab a weapon with that right hand. So, you know, it's not just the punching and kicking. It's the general distance management. Even your footwork, just the small footwork angling steps you're taking, I think have been a big help. But, yes, I've even in the police work, I've used, well, I've kicked indoors and I've kicked people. So kicks have been really helpful. Hawk was doing a drill once when I was training with him and it was it was getting you to move like a boxer. And he was like, what I won't tell a police officer is that this comes from boxing because the police officer will then think I need to go and learn boxing. And he's, he's not really an advocate of police officers learning boxing as such because you know, your your muscle memory programming something like punching someone that you that can get you in a lot of trouble as a police officer. So it's, it's not something that he focuses on. But this, this drill was getting people to move like a boxer. Hence me asking that question. Is it, it From the boxing perspective, has that had merit or, or not? I think you should. I mean, you got to have the whole game. Stand up and everything. I mean, when I've had to kick people, it's not like everything starts at the grappling range generally a good portion is standing you know i had a fueled up drug guy clench his fist and scream and charge right at me so yeah i could meet him force to force and get pretty much tackled or whatever but it was a lot easier just to kick him as he came forward and that stopped that and then you know then you can transition to grappling but i think you should have the whole game it's a street fight in essence but a street fight where i have rules and they don't so I think you should learn all ranges. As I said, I haven't seen you since that 2014 camp, unless Italy was after that, which it might have been. What made you step away and what would take you to sort of come back? Well, I've never, so not so much stepping away. It's people keep in contact and we do stuff and they say, hey, we're doing this. You want to go? I'll go. You know, I like to learn the JKD, do some training, but it's also seeing, you know, all these people that maybe only see once a year, uh, the camaraderie. We all have a common interest we can talk about. And, you know, I learn stuff from other people on there, like the new drills or, hey, I've, I've been playing around with this and it's been working in class or I've sparred and, you know, I've been doing this. And it's not that so much I'm stepping away. I obviously don't care about, you know, putting my name out there to teach or do any of that. It's it's mainly the camaraderie and it's uh, my hobby. So, yeah, you're teaching your son a bit or, or working with Dennis, right? Yeah, my son has taken a, a little bit of interest. I try not to push anything. 
because the more you seem to push people, little kids, the less interest they have. <laughs> yeah. I've noticed that, you know, you just let them observe. And then if they show an interest, then, hey, so I've, I've shown him a little JKD. We'll start building up on that as he shows more and more interest. His focus mainly is baseball now. But uh, I took him down to meet Dennis because I figured there's no one better to teach him how to shoot a gun, which is the ultimate JKD. So <laughs> <laughs> you took me shooting in San Diego with your uh, service Glock, which was pretty good. Me and Scott, which was great. Going on to the policing. So what is your policing role? Uh, right now I'm on a specialized team. It's pretty much mostly proactive. We work in the, they call it the entertainment district, which encompasses mostly the bars. Mainly I'm dealing with the entertainment district, any crimes that happen there and dealing with a lot and a lot of drunks. Your favorite. Uh, yeah, I, bet. I think I've been <laughs> drunk in that city before. I, I'm always amazed because, you know, I've partaken in a, a slight bit of alcohol during my lifetime. And, uh, it's always amazing at how stupid people act. And I go, wow, I guess I really don't have a drinking problem after I watch some of these people. <laughs> it's a tough time to be a police officer at present. What are your thoughts on everything that's going down? Uh, I would not recommend this career to most people right now, especially if it continues on this trend. There's so many different issues. I mean, we could cover on that, but you know, whether they're changing the use of force, they're changing the laws, I would not recommend most people go into it just because liability, the stress and everything, it's just not a good time, I think, morale-wise either for people. I've applied twice to the police in the UK and uh, I, I keep failing their personality test, which is their first stage thing. And it's like they don't give you any feedback. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's bizarre. It's, it's not like scenario-based. It's literally things like, to what extent do you try to do you know, your best every day or something like that? You know, Do you strongly agree to... Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, long story short, um, I have to wait another three months before I can apply again. Come to America, where I think we're lowering standards because we need more police officers. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> they were struggling to recruit police officers here. And then what with COVID and a lack of jobs, now they're like inundated. But I was watching that the other day we had a thing where it was like on the Thursday, it was like the Black Lives Matter protests. And of course, what you what you see is like the violent end of it. So it was some criminality, albeit with a very large group, there was a small number of sort of like, you know, criminals. And then the next day, it was uh, the racist turn. So they were doing like a sort of counter protest to protect statues um, of kind of historical interest that are often like, you know, former slave traders or said something racist 100 years ago, or whatever it might be. And my point of this story is like literally the police were getting it from the Black Lives Matter on a Thursday and then they were getting it from the racists on a Friday. They really are kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. You must see that and see how that's affecting morale on the ground. We're there to try to preserve the peace. You don't let your views get in the way. I mean, I've been on protests for you. You can name it. And, you know, you're thinking, well, I don't really agree with that, but hey. My job is to do this and this, you know, whether it's just drive behind them, they're blocking the streets so someone doesn't come through and, you know, run them all over or whatever. But it can be tough because some of these protesters really let us have it, yelling at us while we're sitting there, even though we're there protecting them from other people that don't agree with them. They're pretty much taking it out on us at the same time. So got to have thick skin. Obviously, there's going to be like bad 
people in any career, the consequences of someone being a bad police officer are much worse than, you know, if you're a bad... I'm trying to think of an example. High school teacher, although, you know, that could be pretty bad as well. Bad example. Lawyer. <laughs> I always use waiter. A bad waiter. If you get bad, sir, bad. You get a bad waiter, all they get is a no tip or whatever. So the consequences yeah. are all less. So uh, the consequences, yeah. yeah, exactly. Do you think there's potentially a training issue? I mean, with that George Floyd thing, obviously, that guy's put his, his knee on, on the guy's neck for like far longer than, than could be deemed reasonable. Is that a training issue or is that just like that guy's like having a bad day as a police officer or he's like a, a bad cop so he's like gone too aggressive or whatever it might be we can get on the whole training issue that's a whole separate question and i i think we definitely need more training but in that is instance with him i don't know if it was a training issue or you know he's just not bright you know i don't know how many cops there are in the u.s Seven hundred thousand. the odds are you're going to get someone that's just does something stupid yeah. and we've all worked jobs where it's a co-worker that's just a moron he did something really stupid and like you said the consequences are way higher we deal with split second decisions life or death decisions unlike i'll use the waiter again who maybe brings you a, your steak not cooked right that's not life or death typically you try to weed out all the stupid ones that's what the whole process is it takes so long doing lie detector tests psychological tests written tests this test that test is to try to get rid, but I mean, somebody's going to slip through the cracks. It just happens, yeah. and it's not good. I hate it, because unlike if there's one bad waiter, you don't say, all waiters suck. As soon as there's one idiot doing something stupid like he did, now we're all grouped together, and I get to come to work and get cursed at, and all that for the next, I don't know how long, because he's a moron. Are you concerned about some of the changes that are coming into, into play off the back of that event? I was reading, Hock had posted something about the potential rule changes that were coming in. They're doing rule changes in terms of, there's the rule changes for de-escalation. If, did you do this before you did use of force? Did you do that? Did you do this? And also making it easier to sue us if you use force. Then there's also the whole other topic of they got rid of the carotid restraint. That's what we call it, BJJ, you know, the rear naked yeah. choke, but it's not technically a choke. I think that's a, a whole other issue that I think is pretty big. Getting rid of that, I think, was a mistake, in my opinion. Yeah, because that is a, a, an alternative to lethal force, potentially. And, you know, you don't have to take it mm. all the way, right? It's just like it's a, it's a temporary tool to get some compliance, right? Yeah, I, I've used it, I don't even know how many times, and... You don't even, most of the time, you don't put them out. Um, just from people watching the UFC, as soon as you get it into them, get, get the position on them, most of them stop resisting at that point. They know that you could put them out. You get in that position, and I've, I've held it in that position and whispered pretty much in their ear, stop resisting or you're going to go out. And most of them stop resisting, put their hands behind them, and then your partner can handcuff them. And I don't know of any cases where I work where someone's been killed if it's properly applied and it's very safe. I mean, how many BJJ schools are there in the world? And I guarantee someone got caught in the rear naked, carotid, whatever you want to call it, position at class today. Has it surprised you how much like the rest of the world's taken that on? So like here in the UK has been like massive protests throughout the COVID lockdown. And it, and it seems to be very much an ongoing thing. 
I'm not surprised it's continuing because people aren't going to work. So I'm assuming some of those people who don't work have time to go protest. And that's why they're out there. You know, I've been on a lot of these protests and I see who it's made up of. And it's a great majority of young 20 year olds who are either probably not going to school and probably not working. So I guess that's their, they might believe in the cause. They might not, but it's their hobby almost at this point. Because there's a protest pretty much every day. For our global listeners, we may have like somewhat of a Hollywoodized view of what being a police officer is like in the US. Could you sort of like elaborate on, you know, look, I, I might draw my gun once a year. Right? I don't know what we, I, we tend to see it as quite a sort of like violent, confrontational place. Exciting, if you will. It depends on where you work and what your assignment is. The best summary someone gave me when I first started is five minutes of excitement for five hours of paper. So people don't realize how much paperwork we have yeah. to do on the job. So you, you, if I deal with a an intense situation, whether it's you know chase somebody down, tackle them, you know the fight's on, you handcuff them and everything. Yeah, that's all great. You know if you're the adrenaline junkie, but then <laughs> and the paperwork after that is you're just sitting in the car with it at the station typing and typing and typing it's a lot more paperwork than probably people expect and i mean you're in quite a nice city but what sort of like crimes are you typically seeing since i'm in a big city we see just about everything you know and i could pull my gun use force numerous times in one week and then i may skip a week or you never know the good thing about the job is you never know what's going to happen So, I mean, when you go to work, it's not like, I know I'm going to sit and stare at this wall for the next, you know, eight hours. You go to work and someone might get carjacked and now you're in a pursuit chasing the car and, you know, lights and sirens having that good old fun of driving a hundred and whatever on the freeway chasing them. But the bad side is also, you don't know what's going to happen today at work. Mm -hmm. So some days if I come in and I'm tired, you go, I really hope nothing bad happens today because I really don't want really want to want to chase anybody and something could happen and well here we go have you had to do a lot of things that maybe you disagreed with ever was has there been like laws where you're like this is just something i don't really want to enforce but it's my job generally the good news is you have to deal with felonies regardless but i mean in terms of what you choose to focus on some people like to do traffic tickets a lot so they can do that and then there's no contrary to everybody's belief there's no quota I don't get any, you know, I don't have to come in with 30 tickets by the end of the month or any of that. That's you still get paid? Thing. Yeah. I tell people that even when I arrest them, they're like, oh, end of the month, it's a quota. You're just arresting me because of that. So I, I told them if there was a quota or I got commission, I mean, my car would be stacked with people then, you know, but back to the point, you can sort of focus on what you like. You know, I went to the specialized team because there's more excitement, more action going on in my assignment. I take less reports that I consider like traffic collision reports or vandalism reports, stuff like that. I'm dealing mainly with people got robbed, people got in a fight or, you know, violent nature stuff. Right. And what do you love most about the job? I like being out there. I, you know, I don't want to be stuck in a, in an office. You know, I've had, there's the opportunity to always, you know, try to become a detective but that's just not something for me. I don't want to sit in the office and 
type on a, I did that before I went to law school. I sat in a, yeah. you know, an office and I didn't enjoy it so much. But I did think of something. You're talking about previous laws we don't agree with. I feel pretty lame enforcing, trying to enforce any of this COVID stuff going on. So there's there's some laws I can say I don't really agree with. So if you want to get me going on that, that's a whole different rant. I think that's completely ridiculous. So there's your laws that I don't agree with at all. Yeah, I think the police have said in the UK, like most of them, they just can't really enforce them and they're not going to. It's impractical. There's people I work with who have enforced it. The amazing part is the citizens are pretty much tattling on each other. You know, I see such and such with four people in their patio and they're not socially distancing and they don't have masks on. And they call me to go do something about it. I go there and just, well, we'll just leave it at that. I just go there and say hi. Hawk had said how... He always stayed working the streets and he persuaded a lot of his friends within the police department to stay working the streets. And it was like, financially and in terms of risk, it was a worse place to be. You know, you were much more at risk and, and financially worse off. But he just said he just loved it. With all his heart, he loves being a police officer. I think he did do a bit of kind of detective-esque work. And he could, he would have made a very good detective by his own admission, you know, and he, he writes all the books now. But yeah, just, just that draw of being out on the street and not knowing what's coming next is, is just really exciting, right? The downside is being on the streets, carrying all that gear, getting into more fights, sitting, just sitting in a car takes a toll on your body. Yeah. So that's why out here when they're saying, hey, why do police officers get to retire at, you know, 55? Have you tried to do this job for like 30 years and see how your body holds up, you know, your lower back, your your legs yeah. and fighting? It's near impossible to try to do this job past 55 and not everybody can be a detective. You know, there's only so many positions. So, you know, there has to be a certain retirement age or soon I'm going to res- be responding to calls with a walker and, you know, wheelchair my way up there. And we don't want that. Yeah, that's right. Did you ever fancy anything like SWAT or do you, do you have ambitions to like do any other things before you reach that retirement age? No, the way I've been in my career is I've done stuff just all of a sudden. Like I never said I'd be a, a field training officer and on a whim decided to do that. And I did it, ended up doing it for four years. But everybody's like, oh, do you think you'll be a training officer? I'm like, nope. And then just one year I, was, I said, hey, it sounds like a good idea. And I did it. So I never know what I'm, <laughs> quite honestly, what I'm going to do. Right now I'm happy on the team I'm, I'm with now doing what I'm doing. So I'm going to stick with that until something else makes me think, hey, that's pretty cool. Let's go try that. Tell us some of your craziest stories, that things that you've seen. You must have a few. I luckily learned early on in this job, there's never good naked. That's uh, definitely the truth. It's hilarious that the newer officers, as soon as they hear, you know, like naked female, and there's like 10 officers <laughs> rushing, to, rushing to the call. And I'm always laughing because I know it's going to be some drugged out, homeless woman running around naked so i talked to a guy who retired after 30 years and i said has there ever been any good naked on this job and he said yes one time one time i had a 20 year old girl really drunk run down naked down the street he's like that was it that was it for 30 years (laughs) (laughs) i actually saw and i've never seen this before but like two days ago it just happens that you, you mention it but i was driving through hackney and there was a girl at a bus stop not really a girl like more like a sort of towards middle-aged woman and she was just sat there naked on the bus stop 
with a big smile on her face. I've I've never seen that. And me and my girlfriend debated whether we kind of pull over and try and help, but we didn't. Other people were like kind of filming or watching from afar. I don't know if it was a prank or, but she certainly looked happy. Maybe she was drugged up. I don't know. But was it a hot day? English summer, so pretty average. <laughs> I think it's just crazy stuff that has happened. I've just seen people lose their minds over minor stuff, like just like traffic stops, just watching people go crazy over a simple ticket. I've, I've watched uh, one instance of a lady, we pulled her over and went back to write the ticket, me and my partner, and we looked forward and she's, the car is literally shaking from her slamming her head against her own steering wheel as she's shaking the car back and forward, screaming and crying. And we had to go up there pretty much check her welfare what is going on do you need mental health you know she's like i can't afford a ticket and just went back to banging her head on the steering wheel and stuff it's uh you see some amazing stuff like that and you and then of course all the excuses when people try to get out of tickets are pretty good too i'm the worst <laughs> i'm the worst at that <laughs> the guy said, guy said why are you driving so fast i said because i've been in traffic for 45 minutes and it just opened up that was honest and he looked at me and he goes so you thought you you just got out of an accident you thought you'd go uh, cause another accident and i was like i didn't say it was a good excuse <laughs> generally i would say most people in my profession appreciate honesty because so we have so many people lie to us and the stories they come up with are just not believable so honesty it was your good choice go to go with that you might have found the guy who appreciated the honesty and let you off uh, but i don't know how fast you were going either uh, just like, like 89 i think yeah yeah it's a little once you start hitting above 80 you're the carpooling <laughs> man it was carpooling <laughs> i think the legal system unlike real life is always adversarial so it's always like right versus wrong and you know there isn't a lot of gray in between so if you ever go to court it's like one side's trying to make the other side look bad and the other side's trying to make the other side look bad it's quite rare that they'll collectively agree on points and work together which is what's necessary to work well in the real world and i think the police probably suffer from that the lawyer side of things where as soon as it goes down that route oh you didn't tell them anything did you you know, it's going to be used against you and this and the other. But it would be good if you could just have an honest conversation. I think, you know, Hawk, again, I've, I've over-mentioned Hawk in this show, but he's one of my points of reference to US policing. He talks about having polite p- police officers, you know, not, not the sort of militarised stuff that you see sometimes. And an old-fashioned style of policing where, yeah, you know, the good guys, you could probably negotiate and let them off some stuff. Even if they'd done, you know, he'd, he'd let people off who'd had to fight just like I'll write you up for what I was going to originally write you up for but not the fact that you'd have the fight with me sort of thing as a favour to them but the bad guys you come down really hard on them and I think because of all the bureaucracy because of all the cameras and everything and because of the legal system things are becoming more sort of adversarial that's just a personal opinion what's your thoughts on that well the thing is most times when we're showing up something bad has happened in your life so either you've been the victim of a crime or you're getting arrested for being the suspect in a crime. Yeah. So either way, we're associated with a bad time in your life for whatever reason. Um, I think in our profession, we could definitely do a better job of communication in terms of, okay, if you stop somebody, as long as, you, I mean, there's a point you got to, it's, the system is ask, tell, make, you know, hey, stop, 
put your hands behind your back. And as long as you cooperate and then I'm safe, whether I put you in handcuffs, then I can explain it to you. And then I think that has helped a lot. Unfortunately, I think communication skills are getting worse because phones and texting, I think in the near future, people are just going to be texting when they uh, are face to face. You know, hey, I'm the police. I'm here to stop you. I'll use an example. Like at two in the morning, someone had just gotten robbed at gunpoint and the getaway car was a gray sedan Toyota, I think, if I can remember right. It's two in the morning. There is no other cars on the street, but here comes a gray Toyota. So everybody stops the car, takes everybody out at gunpoint because these people are supposed to be armed. And then it's confirmed it's not them. There's no gun in the car. They don't match the description of the people. And several of the people I work with, like, just gave them back their IDs and said, all right, you can get out of here. And then, like, got back in their cars. And so now I got four people here wondering why they just got pulled out at gunpoint, which is pretty traumatic for most people. Yeah. So I ended up walking up to the car and I said, hey, did, did they explain to you what happened? And they're like, no. Why did we, you know, they were completely clueless. And this is, you know, getting a bad impression for us. And I said, okay, here's the deal. Someone just got robbed at such and such area. You're coming from that direction. It's two in the morning. There's no other cars on the street. And you have the exact same car. So it's just really bad timing for you, unfortunately. And that's what happened. And then after I gave that explanation, they said, oh, you know, most reasonable people, they were like, oh, thanks for explaining that. Now I understand. And you could totally see a difference in terms of their level of acceptance of it instead of just my fellow officers at the time of just like, here's your ID and I'm going to just go look for the other criminal and not really giving these citizens an explanation. How much training do you get on things like de-escalation and you know, we've always had training on it. You know, if someone has, we'll use a knife because a gun is, it's a lot harder to de-escalate right away. But if someone's standing with a knife and they're a good distance away, you can try to de-escalate. You can hopefully get resources there, like say a dog who could then run up and bite him and stuff like that. But we get a, a decent amount of training. And they're just trying to make more and more. The problem with de-escalation is we have to have time to de-escalate. If we show up and you charge us with the knife or you pull the gun and point it at us, there's no time for de-escalation. We have to defend ourselves. Any reasonable person, I came up to you with a knife and I tried to stab you. I'm hoping you won't just stand there and let me just plunge the knife into you. You're going to do something. So the de-escalation, you have to have time to de-escalate. Very similar to JKD, uh, you know, that I've had people say, well, if you intercept, aren't you technically hitting the guy first? And I'm like, well, as soon as they step aggressively towards you, raise their fist, they're the ones uh, committing the assault. It's hard because yeah, I've had people worry about that. They're like, well, intercepting is you're hitting first. So if there's cameras and stuff, and I was like, well, all I can say is I don't want to let the other guy hit me first. Okay, so I'm unwilling to do that. So intercepting is my best bet here, you know, hitting the knee or, you know, if I see the person aggressively move towards me, I'm going to do this. And so, I mean, they've even shown how quickly a guy with a knife can rush up to a guy that has a gun, right? You know, they've seen those studies and how how hard it is to get a gun out before the guy starts stabbing you. And all of that being shown, it's very hard for for someone to say, well, you know, okay, calm down. Let's take it easy. Was it the 11-foot rule or something like that? I think it's actually 21 feet. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. We've done training with that when I was in the academy where someone has a knife, they're at 21 feet. And then they charge you and your job is to get your gun out of your holster and 
pointed at him and, you know, supposedly put, you know, we weren't actually shooting, but put rounds on him. You know, if someone's full sprinting at you and you got to pull it out, pull out the gun and get it on him. And there's no saying that the rounds are going to stop them. Um, there's a recent video I just watched within the last couple of weeks. The guy charged the officer with a knife. She shot him a couple times. He kept coming. He actually grabbed her gun and the gun ended up jamming and she did a great reload, um, um, great uh, of unjamming it to get a couple more rounds. But I mean, he charged, she shot him a couple times. It didn't stop him. He was able to grab her mm -hmm. gun, but she was able to pull it away to shoot again. So it's no guarantee. I mean, that's the whole other thing I could get into on people not understanding exactly what happens in fights and uses of force. I, you know, constantly read the keyboard warriors telling me I should shoot the gun out of their hand or, you know, shoot them in the kneecap or whatever. And I'm going, okay, you've never shot a gun in your life then. What have you read and what do you find like sort of fascinating or the go-to guides for, you know, any of our listeners to sort of check out? Whether it's like police world, martial arts world. Well, I read a lot of books myself, but... I mean, there's so much stuff you can get on the internet with just simple searches. And if you're talking to them getting training and stuff, I always think awareness and just smarts training like that, not so much the physical, because you're not going to turn into a warrior that's going to beat people up after a couple of weeks of training, but just learning how to be smart. I mean, like they say, common sense isn't so common anymore. And that is definitely what I see on my job. If you don't want to be a victim, the best thing is to make yourself the least vulnerable because these criminals are like the lions out there out in Africa. They look for the weak. They look for the, you know, the easiest targets. They're not going to go for the, the person that's, uh, you know, okay, that guy's paying attention. That guy looked at me when I looked at him. Uh, you know, he's aware he's in shape. I mean, I have parolees, people have been released from prison and they size you up. They've sized me up. I've had a guy tell me, he goes, yeah, I saw you get out of the car. I was thinking of running, but you actually look like you're in shape. <laughs> so they size you up. And same thing there, you, you know, in getting awareness. So many of these people are victims for just not being bright. Walking, I mean, how many people have been told not to walk down a dark alley? And every night I see it, you know, lone female walks down a dark alley, intoxicated, looking down at her cell phone. And then it's just a matter of perfect timing. They run into you. They punch you, take your purse or whatever. And same thing, people... It's amazing. People don't sometimes lock their doors or windows or anything. And I work in an area that's a lot of 20-year-olds, college people live in the area, and they don't lock their doors, and drunk people will wander into their house in the middle of the night. I have a 16-year-old son, and he, you know, we're talking about all the stuff that's going on. And uh, I think one of the major points, especially, you know, Sean, is a, he's a friend of mine. He's a police officer. He is as white as you can make him. He's a good guy. <laughs> what I've told my son is... Uh, bigotry is what's bad, right? And bigotry is when you say everyone in this group or that group, whether it's a color, whether it's a job description, like a police officer. And, and uh, you know, we have to be careful now where we start saying, you know, like Sean said at the beginning, you know, because somebody else did something very bad. Now he's a target or he's, you know, getting cussed at. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tense time. There's a lot of bad energy and a, and a lot of people are frustrated it's kind of like when you're brought up just in a good home and they say two wrongs don't make a right. I think that we have to watch out where people are, it, it, it's kind of bigotry against bigotry. Yeah. Now, this is the kind of thing that I hope people can start to learn. It's like people are people. We got to stop seeing people as groups. Mm. 
you know, we have a lot of friends over the years that are soldiers, police officers, many just good people. And, uh, and I appreciate them. And one day they're a hero. And then a month or two later, you know, one day they're a first responder. And then a couple months later, they're, they're an a-hole just simply because of their job description. Yeah. That's something I've been talking to my son about. And I figured it's, it's probably bears mentioning, but I appreciate the work that you do, Sean. And it's, it's been, I haven't talked to you enough over the last few years, but it's been great to get back in touch with you and, and everything. Well, hopefully we'll all start getting together again and training and stuff and uh, doing all that fun stuff. But yeah, to echo your thing, I think, uh, you know, hopefully we can improve as a society from here. I think both sides need to be communicating better, shall we say. You know, our side, I'm, I'll am i say our side in terms of first responders, police officers. I think we need to do a better job communicating too. Like, you know, when the example I use, that needs to happen on a daily basis. When I deal with people, I try to explain why. Once things are safe, why I'm doing this, why, you know, why this is happening. And generally, most reasonable good people, after you give a good explanation, understand. There's always the outliers that no matter what you say, you're an idiot and they're not going to agree with you no matter how many facts or points you make. But, yeah, hopefully uh, things will get a little better and that uh, these you will know, have to be hopefully through communication and not, uh, you know, anything worse. So, Sean, what does the future hold for you? I'm really hoping the gyms and stuff will start opening again so I can start training more often. Ours opened yesterday in the UK. Yeah, our stuff opens up and then our governor gets decides it closes like a week later. So, luckily, you know, I have stuff in my garage so I get to work out. Fellow co-workers come over I get to train with, but it's not the same as I was a member of an MMA gym out here. And uh, it was nice to go there and train against, you know, young 20-year-old athletic guys who are entering MMA competitions to get some good training in. So hopefully uh, stuff will open up because I miss, uh, miss the training. So besides that is focusing on other my weaknesses. You talked about yours is the ground. I want to improve my weapon defense, unarmed mainly in that aspect. I've, I've actually, you know, had people where I've came behind them, grabbed their hands, and they had a knife in their hand. So I've, I want to work on my knife defense and then definitely want to improve all my shooting aspects. So I've, I've definitely been focusing on improving uh, that. That's a good set of ambitions. <laughs> cool. I, I, look, it, um, I, could, I could ask you like a million police questions, but I'm conscious like you've come off a night shift and it's probably slightly draining. It's been amazing catching up with you. And like Jeremy, it's like kind of just good to see your face because <laughs> it really has been too long. I'm interviewing Brent next week and it's kind of, we're all old friends. Me, me maybe slightly less so than you guys. You guys have been around longer, but it's great to see everyone. I'm hoping we can get back to like doing things more regularly and, and staying in touch and we're making little steps forward in that, in that way. Yeah, I would love, I know our big focus is Jay Kitty and that should be the, I think our core, I'd love to get together and do that. But also I'd like to see what you've been doing with the Filipino martial yeah. arts and, you know, stuff like that. I'd love to, to bring some of that to the table if the guy, if the other guys are interested, because, you know, it's been, it's been my big focus for like the last five years or so, five, six years. Jeremy, do you want to do your Tom McGrath impression to sort of sign us out of Primal Radio? <laughs> okay, <clears throat> let me see. Well, it's been great having you on the show, Sean. You know, we're going to have a great show next week, I'm sure, even better than this one. Check everybody next time. And once again, it's just been great having Jeremy on the show. It's wonderful. <laughs> 
Yeah, thanks for that, mate. Right, Primal Radio, peace out. have been listening to Primal Radio in association with Primal Gym and Primal Promotions. Primal Radio is available on all good podcast venues. To help us grow, please subscribe, like it, share it, and leave us a great review.